Welcome to the BC Bar Community's Law Student Podcast with your host, Sienna Hurd, 2L at American University, Washington College of Law. Kirsten Wolford, 3L at the George Washington University Law School. Renata Mitchell, 3L at the George Washington University Law School. Elena Hoffman, 2L at the George Washington University Law School. And you're listening to Let's Brief It. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening to Let's Brief It, the podcast made for law students by law students. I'm Renata Mitchell. And I'm Elena Hoffman. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about family law, surrogacy contracts, and ART. To learn more about this issue, we're joined today by our guest, Jennifer Fairfax. Jennifer practices family law and has experience handling domestic infant adoptions through agency and private adoptions. She assists clients through the legal process, including navigating the interstate compact on the placement on children process for domestic adoptions, the Indian Child Welfare Act, and the readoption and finalization process for international adoptions. Jennifer also has extensive experience working with clients who are interested in growing their families through the use of alternative reproductive technology. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to uh, having this conversation with the two of you this morning. So before we brief it, can you tell us a little bit about why and how you entered this practice area? Sure, absolutely. So I was practicing general family law for about 10 years. And during that tenure, I was handling some adoption cases and some surrogacy related issues, as well as issues in the LGBTQ plus community. And I just grew a passion for helping families and kind of the joy of how those um, often end, although not all as we would like them to be. And so I decided when I had my own family to branch out and develop this practice area on my own. And that's what I've been doing now. And it's a great area and I I truly enjoy it. What does a typical day at work look like for you? When you do adoption and assisted reproductive technology, because I do both of those areas of the law, it's really what I refer to as a volume practice. So unlike my general family law practice, when I did that, where I would have you know, a, a handful of cases, but they all required a lot of work over the course of several years. In adoption-assisted reproductive technology, I may be working on 10 or 15 cases in the same day and have somewhere between 200 and 300 active cases at a time. You know, Sort of doing the math, I usually say like I touch over 100 of my clients' cases in a given month. And so it's a volume practice. So what a typical day looks like for me is sometimes I'm getting text messages before 7 a.m. because a baby was born, perhaps on my adoption side of my practice, um, or there's a complication with the surrogacy that I'm addressing. Um, I tend to have meetings all day long. So they may be by Zoom now or phone or in person. There are times when I have to go to hospitals for the adoption side. Um, or talk to hospital personnel related to the surrogacy birth. And then um, I try to actually leave my desk area between 5 and 5.30, but I actually continue working oftentimes after that. And just to say, to be clear, that may look like a 10 to 12 hour day, which sometimes they are, but sometimes I also can go a day with there's really not a lot happening. We call that sort of a dip because sometimes I actually have to work on a weekend because a baby is born or there's a surrogacy issue that has to be addressed over the weekend. So there's not, it's not always a nine to five job, but it's a very busy schedule where you have to be able to shift from all the different types of issues that come up in these complex cases in an eight hour to 10 hour period. 
Well, you touched on this perhaps, but I was curious to find out how the pandemic has impacted your particular practice. I know you mentioned that you've had some meetings on Zoom and phone calls, but it looks like you still have to go in to the adoption sites uh, occasionally. Yeah, I mean, so since the pandemic started, we really haven't slowed down that much in our practice in either of our practice areas. So if I focus directly on the assisted reproductive technology, we definitely had a slow period because the clinics were closed down. So they weren't doing embryo transfers or medical clearances because the parties weren't able to travel to the clinics. So we kind of had a little bit of a slowdown. At the same time though, we had an uptick in adoptive families looking to grow their families who were home and stuck at home and deciding this was a good time to do that. And so that has been sort of a, you know, somewhat of an adjustment. And now we're back full force in both areas of the law. So we're really busy. But other than converting our in-person meetings to Zoom, I've still had to go to hospitals to do paperwork. I have still had to um, travel to meet birth mothers. I still had to notarize documents. The clients that I notarized documents would come meet me outside at a table outside instead of in my office. But from a client flow basis, it has been pretty steady even through the pandemic. You talked about this a bit. But to give our listeners kind of a deeper understanding of what you do, what role exactly do lawyers have in the process of ART? So there's several different ways which we intersect with ART. So most of it is contract-based. So when the intended parents, the people who are intending to become the parents of the child and the gestational surrogate, the woman who's giving birth, meet each other, they need a legal contract between them to negotiate all of the details of surrogacy. So how many embryos are going to be transferred, how long the contract's going to last, who can terminate it and when, what happens when she gets pregnant. All of the issues that you can imagine that come up, these are usually anywhere from 40 to 70 page, single page legal documents that are being negotiated between the intended parents and carriers. We also actually, in a huge part of my practice is doing what we call donor agreements. So some intended parents can't use their own genetic material to have a child. So they need to use an egg donor, a sperm donor, or an embryo that's being donated to them. And I'm also negotiating those contracts as well. So they could use a known donor, somebody that they know, or somebody from a clinic or a program. And so I'm negotiating those legal contracts as well. And then the last part where we intersect is obtaining parentage orders. So this is a relatively new law in D.C. It's also, um, we do it in Maryland, and there's a law in Virginia, and there's laws all across the country that vary by state, where once the surrogate is pregnant with the intended parent's child, We draft what's called a petition for declaration of parentage, and we actually file everything with the court and ask the judge to issue a court order naming them as the parents. So that's the pure legal contract side of it. I'm also oftentimes assisting the clients in understanding the process and picking their IVF clinic, you know, helping figure out how they're going to find their surrogate. So I'm, I'm guiding and consulting throughout the whole process as well. In your experience, what are the most common legal problems associated with uh, ART right now? So I think one of the biggest problems with ART is that the laws across the country vary so widely that it's very, you have to be really, really in tune, not only to the laws of your own state, but as an ART attorney, I have to be acutely aware of the laws across the country so that I make sure that everybody is protected. So for example, in the state of Michigan, surrogacy contracts are illegal, 
in entering into them could end up in a criminal charge. And so we have to make sure that, you know, nobody is going into Michigan and nobody's involved in surrogacy in Michigan, you know, and then other states have different laws that can impact it with regards to when life begins and, and the ability to sort of terminate a pregnancy if there's a medical issue. Um, and so again, these laws vary by state and that becomes somewhat of a, of a challenge, you know, not one that's, that's insurmountable, but one that exists. And so you really, really have to be experienced and you have to be able to check the laws of other states when you're drafting these contracts. Yeah, I think that's important to note. How do states decide parentage? I learned recently that some states use a process called determination of parentage. Um, which allows a parent-child relationship to be established before the child is born. But what are some of the most common across the states and how do you, how do you deal with that? That is a great, great question. And we are in a jurisdiction which makes that really easy for me to understand. And when I say jurisdiction, I mean Maryland, D.C., and Virginia. I think the best way to answer this question for you is to explain how it's done in each jurisdiction briefly, which is in the state of Virginia, in order to establish parentage and a surrogacy, it's a, what we call a post-birth certificate amendment process. So by statute in Virginia, there is no court order pre-birth and there's no court order. It's all administrative. So after the surrogate gives birth, there's a stack of documents that everybody signs. They can't be signed until 72 hours after birth. And once everybody signs those and submits it to vital records, vital records will issue a birth certificate listing the intended parents as the parents. And that is the law in Virginia, and that's how you establish parentage. You can get a post-birth court order under the Parentage Act, um, but that's not required in Virginia. Now let's look at the District of Columbia. So I assisted in drafting the statute that is currently in effect in the District of Columbia, the Collaborative Reproduction Act. And under that, you can get a pre-birth order. So by statute, when the surrogate is pregnant, anytime after she's pregnant, you can file with the court a petition for parentage, submit all the appropriate documents, a copy of the surrogacy agreement, a doc, an affidavit from the doctor who did the embryo transfer, affidavits from the lawyers confirming that everything was complied with under DC law. You can submit all of that to the court and the court will issue a pre-birth order. And you'll get that and then that order is given to the hospital and then when the baby is born, the intended parents are treated as the parents, the paperwork is sent to DC Vital Records, and they will issue a birth certificate in the intended parent's name. So that's also by statute. You can also do that post-birth in DC. In DC, you can only get a parentage order if either the intended parents live there, the gestational carrier lives there, or if the baby is born there. So that's a post-birth option. So now we can move over to Maryland. And Maryland has no statute currently with regards to surrogacy. So we do it based on case law. We have a case in Maryland that says that a surrogate or a woman can assert or deny maternity similar to a man. And so when a gestational surrogate is pregnant, she denies maternity and we do a petition for parentage. We have her sign off that she's not the mother. We have the intended parents sign off that they are the parents. We submit it to court and based on case law, the court will issue a parentage order and order again that the, the intended parents are placed on the birth certificate and all of that is submitted to Maryland Vital Records. So our three jurisdictions that are within driving distance have three completely different 
ways of doing this. And that is consistent across this country. Most states that have statutes allow you to do it pre-birth. States that don't have statutes are doing it either on case law um, and are, you know, aren't, aren't as structured. And that's another reason why it's another challenge because if a surrogate lives in Maryland, but she accidentally gives birth in Virginia, you have two completely different legal processes that you have to navigate. So theoretically, if the parents lived in Virginia, the surrogate was from Maryland, but she gave birth in DC, would that be a very complicated process? <laughs> yeah, well, we try to avoid that by, by telling the surrogate she's not allowed to leave Maryland towards the end of her pregnancy. But it would, it, what would happen is you would probably have had a Maryland pre-birth order already in place, but you'd have to go and then get a DC post-birth order. So it would definitely be more expensive. And probably for somebody who doesn't know the laws as well as I do, it could feel very overwhelming and complicated. I bet there's a lot of litigation around this or there will be with all of the patchwork of laws in this area. Currently, we don't have a lot of litigation in this area, but I, I say that this is an area that's prone for that potential because of all the mismatch of laws. You're exactly right. Can you talk a little bit about the ethical concerns or risks associated with ART? Sure, absolutely. So I think some of the biggest ethical concerns that I can talk about are ones that I hear when I'm testifying with regards to legislation. So when I worked with the DC to get the Collaborative Law Act passed, and then in the attempts to get it passed in Maryland, um, a lot of the issues that are raised are, one, whether or not the gestational carrier is being taken advantage of because she's you know, doing this usually for some type of compensation or reimbursement or payment. And so there's a concern that um, there's a sort of unequal footing. I would disagree that that's a concern. I represent a lot of gestational carriers, all of whom are intelligent, educated women who are either stay-at-home moms by choice um, or are career-oriented and are doing this with a certain degree of compassion. There are also standards that protect against that um, as far as you know, what type of person could be a gestational carrier. The other ethical concern that we hear is, uh, is something that you know, we're always careful to address, but people's um, decisions about termination of a pregnancy, because you have one person who is carrying a pregnancy that is a child that is not their child. So if the intended parents wish to terminate the pregnancy because there's a medical condition, not just because they don't want it, there has to be a medical condition um, and there's certain requirements in order to do that. Um, and so there's obviously concerns and something that needs to be navigated with regards to all the parties involved about how people feel about that and you know what are the standards and what are the requirements. Um, so that is the second one. And then the third one is often the number of embryos that are being transferred into a gestational carrier. When I first started doing this 20 years ago, there might've been three or four embryos transferred per embryo transfer. There was certainly an increase in the number of multiple births. Now I rarely see more than one embryo transfer, but that's because the science and the medical technology has grown so much that they're much more confident that they can get one embryo to stick and grow into a fetus and, and a healthy child. So they're not putting multiples in with the hope that one would, would come to fruition. So you talked about how each state kind of has different laws in this area. How is or is it at all regulated in the United States, ART? 
So it's not. <laughs> That's probably the uh, the short answer. Um, surrogacy is not regulated. Let me start with that, right? So surrogacy, unless it's by individual states who have statutes that that address the contract of parentage, but it doesn't regulate the surrogacy process at that higher level. So when people are looking to be a surrogate or matching with surrogates, there's no regulation with that. Um, similarly with egg donors, sperm donors and embryo donors, there's a little more regulation in that there's the FDA, there's requirements, there's testing requirements and things like that that are in place that can do some level of protection. But as far as the donation of the egg, sperm, or embryos to somebody else, again, that's a relatively unregulated area of the law. Now, the clinics themselves have different types of regulations. So they're all under medical requirements and you know, HIPAA and FDA and other things. So fertility clinics have reporting requirements as far as you know, how many pregnancies are, are by IVF, how many are gestational surrogacy pregnancies? All of those things are regulated from a medical and a health perspective. And I don't have all the nuances of that. Many of the really well-known clinics um, adhere to what's called the ASRM guidelines, the Society of Reproductive Medicine, American Society of Reproductive Gui uh, Medicine guidelines. And those clinics will have even greater reporting requirements because they're a member of that organization. Um, but otherwise, there's not a lot of regulation and reporting in the surrogacy side, sort of the legal side of it, more so only on the medical. And again, they're, they're reporting stats. Again, number of pregnancies, number of embryos transferred, those kinds of things. Um, and of course, the IVF clinics have to publish their statistics as well. So that is part of their reporting as well. So how many pregnancies as a result of all the various medical technology that they use. Um, so that side of it's regulated, but the surrogacy side of it is not. For the, the medical side of things that you just mentioned, does your practice of counseling weigh into the advice you give to, to clients or is your work purely on the legal side of things? So I'm really careful with all of my clients and anybody that has a client of mine would probably also say, yeah, Jennifer says that repeatedly. I am not a medical doctor. I'm not a mental health professional. And I can't give you any advice with regards to that. I can tell clients to look at the statistics that are published on clinics. I can tell them questions to ask the clinics, you know, ask them about this, ask them these questions. But as far as me giving advice or guidance on those issues, I stay very far away from it and stay in my lane of the legal advice and guidance in the process. Got it. So uh, with ART advancing so quickly and the laws changing in different states, what are some emerging legal issues you anticipate happening in the future? First off, I think we're going to start to see more and more states enacting statutes that are going to provide guidelines. I think we're now starting to see states that are going to create those guidelines and statutes that are going to look like other ones. So, for example, D.C. Um, statute is looked at when other states are thinking about or looking to put their statutes in. New York recently passed their statute that went effective in February. Um, if you look at their statute, you can see pieces of California, pieces of pieces of the other statutes that have been entered. So I think first and foremost is keeping up with all the new laws across the country and how those are going to change how lawyers um, handle cases in those specific jurisdictions. 
I also think that we're going to see more language in statutes that address the eggs and embryo donations. So right now, every state in this country has a law on the books that addresses sperm donation, but they don't all have laws that address egg donation and embryo donation. So I think we're going to see those laws changing. I think we're going to have to, because that's becoming just a more and more common practice across the board. I also think that we're it's going to be interesting to address is states that have addressed uh, personhood that view the embryos to be a person. And in jurisdictions where that's the case, I think you're going to see less surrogacy because it really takes away a lot of the options of the intended parents and the gestational carrier or pregnant woman to make decisions about her own, for a pregnant woman and on the adoption side, to make decisions about her own body and her own reproductive health. Those are limited by states to do that. And in the surrogacy realm, it really restricts the negotiation between the intended parents of the carrier about what they want to do and how they want their family to be built. And so I think that that's going to be a legal issue that's going to need to be addressed in those states that enter those types of laws. A lot of our listeners are law students or people who may be interested in going to law school. So do you have any advice for those that may be interested in your specific practice area or just maybe interested in practicing family law in general? So I definitely think if you're interested in family law in general, you know, looking to start as as an associate in a law firm is is obviously the, the first avenue to doing that. From a law school perspective, you know, doing a clinic, if there's a family law clinic, obviously taking the family law courses. Um, When I was towards the end of my law school, I actually knew what county that I was going to be in, and I went over and took the Bar Association classes um, so that I could get to know the lawyers that were in my county where I was going to be before I was even done with law school. So towards the end of my third year, I would come over and take like a CLE in the county. So I could do that in D.C. and Virginia, you know, taking some of those because a lot of your practice, particularly in family law, is not just bringing the clients in, but also referrals from other attorneys, having relationships with other attorneys that you're going to be working against, sometimes with, depending on the type of case. So I think doing that um, is, is crucial, as well as potentially doing some informational interviews with family law attorneys that you are, in, again, in the area that you want to practice. So that's family law in general. I think for those who really want to go into adoption and ART, you know, it's a very niche area of the law. So it is not the kind of area where you can kind of come out and hang a shingle and be, okay, I'm an adoption or an ART attorney. The primary reason for that is it's really built on a reputation and a trust um, because it is such an intimate area of the law and so personal as well. I tell people all the time, I've been doing this for two decades and probably only the last 10 years that I feel like I was actually an adoption and ART attorney. Um, It took like 10 years of doing this exclusively before I felt like I really had a practice and people who knew what I was doing. It was really sort of impacting. It was around that time that I started working on legislation, writing a book in the area and stuff like that. Um, So if you want to go into this area, you know, I would almost say do follow the similar track that I did, which is actually do family law for a few years before you start to try to develop this area. My family law practice really, really helps me in this area. And it's because there is crossover. For example, on the adoption side, understanding birth parent rights, understanding 
how custody child support works to be able to explain that to a putative father, um, understanding how birth certificates operate, you know, like being able to have those conversations and understanding what all of that looks like has really helped me. In my surrogacy side, drafting prenup agreements, postnup agreements, separation agreements, those contract skills that you learn as a family law practitioner have really proven extremely helpful to me in my practice where I am drafting and reviewing a handful of contracts a day. So my advice is not to try to jump right into it, but to get a few years of either family law primarily or even some type of contracts practice under your belt because you're going to need all of those skills and experience to be able to do this area of the law. That's wonderful insight for our law students to hear and especially how you already did CLE classes while you were in law school. It's never too soon to get involved with your local bar association. The plug there for DC Bar. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us today and to the DC Bar for hosting us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And I wish all of you the best of luck in your careers. The DC Bar Law Student Community strives to engage and support law students before you graduate and expose you to the tangible benefits of joining the DC Bar and DC Bar communities. Curated programming allows law students to participate in substantive content programming, leadership trainings, networking with practicing attorneys in fields of interest, writing opportunities, and other activities designed to expand your legal education beyond the classroom. Make an investment in your legal career by joining the law student community. To learn more, visit us at www.dcbar.org or email communities at dcbar.org. We look forward to hearing from you.